Well, in November of last year, there was a song uh, that was released called Now and Then, which as a, as a musician and sort of a music junkie, uh, I, f- I found quite fascinating. Uh, the song has been described as the last Beatles song. Um, they actually used new kind of AI, artificial intelligence technology. Um, they took the voice of John Lennon, who, who died back in 1980. They recovered his voice from this old demo tape of the song, and they had some guitar parts that had been re- recorded by George Harrison in the 90s. He also passed away in 2001. And these two old recordings were combined with, with new recordings of drums and bass and piano and vocals from the two surviving members, from Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr. And it's really kind of haunting to be able to hear this, this historic band who really influenced so many musicians and music lovers over multiple generations to hear them through the, through the use of technology collaborating on a song again. And the, even the lyrics of the song are, are eerily fitting. It says, now and then I miss you. Now and then I want you to be there for me. This band where only two of the founding members are still alive. And yet by weaving together various parts from, from the present, now, and then also from the past, then, uh, this is over 50 years from the time their last album came out, the Beatles shared one last song with the world. Well, this morning we are in the book of Psalms, which is uh, a book, uh, a hymn book, the definitive collection of worship music, songs, and hymns for God's people, Israel. And the psalm that we're going to be looking at, Psalm 145, is the last song of King David, uh, Israel's greatest king and also a prolific songwriter. And, of course, it's no understatement to say that, that David, through his, his songs, through the psalms that he wrote, uh, shaped the theology and, and the worship music for millions of people over, for over two millennia. So, as we look at this Psalm 145, and you can find it uh, in one of the Blue Pew Bibles, it'll be on page 524. As we look at this Psalm, what does David want to leave us with in his, his last song, the last song from, from his pen in the book of Psalms? Well, we could really just attempt to summarize his message with a single word, and that would be praise. So read with me from Psalm 145. We'll read through the whole thing here. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. 
All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Well, the main idea uh, that I see as kind of encapsulating some of the main themes of this psalm, uh, and this will kind of provide an outline uh, for us as we, as we walk through it, uh, the main idea would, would be simply this, praise the Lord for his covenant faithfulness, his glorious kingdom, and his goodness to all. And so we're kind of going to walk through those, those three things uh, uh, in, in order. Praise to the Lord for his covenant faithfulness, his glorious kingdom, and his goodness to all. Now, Psalm 145 is, is the only one out of David's psalms that's classified up at the top there in the superscription as a song of praise. Uh, this is also an acrostic psalm, which means that every line begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet and all the way, all the way through. Um, faithful Israelites would actually recite this psalm three times a day, the same, same as they did with the, the Shema, the hero Israel. So it was a, a really foundational core part of their, their daily worship. Um, it has a single-minded aim, right? And that's to call people to praise the Lord. Uh, Psalm 145 also, uh, where it's placed towards the end of the book of Psalms, it introduces the conclusion of the book, Psalms 146 through 150. And those are a set of five Psalms called the Hallelujah Psalms because every one of them begins and ends with the phrase, praise the Lord, which in Hebrew is hallelujah. So it's, it's a psalm of praise, and it kicks off an entire chain of psalms of praise that conclude the book. Now, Christians, uh, as we've already seen this morning, we've already experienced uh, in our worship, we are called to live, and we are, are known uh, and to be uh, identified as people who, who live with an overall posture of praise. But what does that actually look like? Well, it involves gratitude, gratitude for God's goodness and kindness. It involves a posture of humility because God's greatness is unsearchable and beyond our capacity to even comprehend. Words will fail us. As Paul writes in Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. It means that we recognize all his benefits all his grace and his mercy towards us, and that brings about a response of praise and thanksgiving. It also means we should be a people with a deep and abiding joy 
because we know who God is. We know what he's done in the past, and so we can have confidence and hope for the future. If we know the excellencies, the perfections of God, if we've seen them and experienced them for ourselves, then we're obligated to to extol them and to make much of them. And our responsibility then is to, to sing of the glory that we've beheld, to tell others of the majesty and the greatness that's been revealed to us. And truly, praise is the most natural and obvious response when we truly behold the beauty and majesty of God. This is the way that that C.S. Lewis uh, famously uh, wrote about this topic. He said, The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. And so praise is just the natural human response when we see God's goodness and his perfection. And so in this psalm, David wants to give us plenty of reasons, plenty of evidence. He wants to make an ironclad case and be absolutely sure that we are convinced that God is worthy of our praise. And so we're going to go through these, through these three um, kind of headings, God's covenant faithfulness, his glorious kingdom, and his goodness to all. So number one, his covenant faithfulness, we see here in verses four through nine. Now the first reason we should praise God is his covenant faithfulness. And what that means is God keeps his promises. He guides and protects his chosen people And then they're commanded to tell the next generation of all his mighty acts of salvation so that his long-term faithfulness over the generations, over the the centuries, will be remembered and praised. And so we see this uh, right there in verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. See, from the very, very beginning the the founding members of the nation of Israel, God's people were given the solemn charge to tell the stories of God's wondrous works of salvation to future generations so that they would fear him and trust him. So even in Genesis 18, 19, when, when the Lord visits Abraham, he says, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And then, of course, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 6, uh, as Moses uh, is, is instructing the nation of Israel after coming out of Egypt, he says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Now, this whole task, this project of of telling the next generation, teaching 
future generations is described in, in the most detail in Psalm 78. Uh, and if you actually want to just flip back probably a few pages in your Bible there to Psalm 78, we're going to read Psalm 78 verses 4 through 7. But Psalm 78, Asaph says, We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Now notice here in Psalm 78, how the opposite of telling the next generation, it, it's not simply a passive thing. Uh, we shirked our duty. We, we kind of dropped the ball there. No, it's active. It's described as hiding these things. If we don't tell our children, if we don't tell the next generation of the wondrous things God has done in salvation history, in the gospel, and in our own lives, if we don't tell them how he's been faithful, how he's kept his promises, we are hiding those things. Just like the way Jesus spoke about hiding a lamp under a basket, a light under a bushel. And why would we hide something so wonderful, so faith-inspiring, so life-giving? If Israel was to pass down the law and to tell the stories of the great salvation events of the Exodus, how much more must we pass on God's redemptive work through Jesus Christ to our children, and to new generations of disciples. Notice also, going back to, to our Psalm 145, notice in verse 5 what a, a corporate project this is. So in verse 5, David says, On your wondrous works I will meditate. And then in verse 6, They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. There's kind of this call and response, this back and forth. David meditates on what God has done. The congregation speaks about it. David declares it, and the congregation sings. It really brings to mind Ephesians chapter 5. There, in Ephesians 5, Paul commands the church to be filled with the Spirit and to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And really, that's why it's, it's so necessary, it's so uh, important for us to, to commit to and to gather regularly with our church community, because every single member of this church plays a crucial role in speaking truth and singing truth and encouraging one another with the truth. In addition to the corporate task of discipling and teaching the next generation of children and youth, we also have a responsibility to one another, all of us. Now, what are uh, these mighty acts and wondrous works uh, that, that David is talking about here in, uh, in verses uh, four, 4 through 6? Well, those terms were used uh, throughout the Old Testament to describe the exodus from Egypt. When God brought Israel out of slavery and led them safely through the Red Sea and, and destroyed Pharaoh's army in the waters of the sea. Now, as Christians, we've experienced an even greater 
exodus from sin and death. As we just sang earlier, something greater has come. We've experienced a greater exodus through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. And of course, this should be no surprise because the one true God, the creator of all, he never changes. He's the same for Abraham, for Moses, for David, and now for us in the church. He's always been the same gracious and merciful God. Just as David, David describes him in verse 8 there, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. You see, the Lord revealed his glory to Moses in Exodus 34 using these same words. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he's the same gracious God who who David served and worshipped, and now his grace and mercy has been revealed through his son Jesus Christ, who accomplished wondrous works, mighty acts of salvation on our behalf. See, Jesus did all that was necessary to accomplish the exodus we needed. Because every person who's ever lived is enslaved to sin, and the wages of sin, God's word says, is death. Because of our rebellion, we deserve judgment. And so we cannot save ourselves, we cannot rescue ourselves by our own will or power, but Jesus stood in our place under the full weight of God's judgment. And on the cross, died the death we deserved, took our place, even though he was without sin and blameless. And so we can now have the eternal life that comes from him, the life he always intended for his creation. Because he rose from the dead after three days, sitting down at the right hand of God the Father, proving without beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he had conquered sin and conquered death, and his sacrifice was fully sufficient as a payment for our salvation. And so he offers that rescue, and he offers that eternal life of of glory and joy in his presence forevermore to anyone, to whoever would put their faith in him. That is the gospel that Christians treasure and proclaim and live by. And if you've never embraced or fully understood that gospel message before, I would, I would just encourage you, talk to, to me or to one of the elders who's on the back of your bulletin. Just come and, and talk to us about what it would mean to put your faith in Jesus Christ and begin to follow him. Now, Christian, do you actually take the time to, to look back and to consider how God rescued you. Do you meditate on these things as as David uh, did in verse 5? Do you learn about and and recount uh, all the ways that he's preserved and protected his people throughout the ages? That can mean, of course, you know, studying our Bibles. It can also mean learning more about church history, about the Protestant Reformation, the different ways that God has protected and preserved the gospel even, even learning about the history of this church, South Canyon Baptist Church, which, uh, which actually Pastor James goes over in our, in our discovery class uh, for, for new members. This church is, is 70 years old. God has been really faithful uh, over the years, even over decades. But God has not only protected his people, 
He's caused spiritual growth. He's caused conversions. He's, he's brought spiritual health and flourishing into church communities, into families, and into the lives of individuals. And so, church, do we thoughtfully recount how God has been faithful to keep his promises in our lives? Do we tell those stories to our children? You know, one of the things I most appreciate about my parents, uh, and, and my mom uh, passed away about 13, 14 years ago, uh, but they would tell the stories of God's faithfulness. They would share uh, the stories, their testimony of their conversion, how God saved them. They would share the stories of, of other relatives and loved ones coming to faith. Uh, and they would share the stories of God's provision and direction and, and even uh, in miraculous ways uh, as, as they pursued ministry and outreach, the ways that God uh, cared for them and provided for them. And those are some of the, the most powerful things that, that I and my siblings and even uh, my kids have to, uh, to be able to, to, to know about that heritage and to be inspired to, to live uh, a faithful life um, just, just as they did. So do we tell those stories to our children, to our friends? Do we write them down even, even in a journal? Or do we perhaps share them uh, in a social media post or in a Christmas letter? Because, because our God is faithful. So that's number one, the faithfulness of our God. But then number two is his glorious kingdom. Here in verses 10 through 13, David just really uh, hammers home this point that God is king over all the earth. He's sovereign over all he's made. And so he is worthy of our praise for his just and wise and perfect reign. Not only is our, our God faithful and promise-keeping and so worthy of praise, he's also, he is the king who we desperately need and long for. And we must submit to his reign, for his kingdom is glorious and wonderful beyond measure. We should all long to live under such a reign. The greatest good any human being can know is to find eternal life in his everlasting kingdom. The author Graham Goldsworthy writes uh, here about the kingdom of God. He says, The idea of the rule of God over creation, over all creatures, over the kingdoms of the world, and in a unique and special way over his chosen and redeemed people is the very heart of the message of the Hebrew Scriptures. And this biblical image of God as king is impossible to miss here in verses 10 through 13. Just look at those again here. Together, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So here in Psalm 145, David, Israel's greatest king, is acknowledging that the true and the greater and the everlasting kingdom is the Lord's. And yet, God's intention has always been to share 
that rule with faithful human image bearers. You see, David himself had received a particular promise of, of covenant faithfulness from God. He was told in 2 Samuel 7 that his dynasty, his house, would last forever, a never-ending kingdom. He was promised that one of his descendants would, would be established on an eternal throne. Now, another king who, who acknowledged the supremacy of God's kingdom using some of the same language as Psalm 145, was Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian king, in Daniel 4.3. After recognizing God's greatness and his power, he, he said, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. But see, then later on in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of one like a son of man who is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, the mystery that's hinted at in God's covenant with David and in Daniel's vision, the mystery is fully revealed at the coming of Christ. A son of man, the Messiah, who's the son of David, is given an everlasting kingdom. And he receives allegiance and even worship from God's people because he is both fully God and fully man. He is a faithful son who at long last can lead a new humanity into God's purposes. And so now a Christian is a person who has been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, as it says in Colossians 1.13. And Revelation chapter 5 says that Jesus, the Lamb of God, has by his blood ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation and made them a kingdom and priests to God and they shall reign on the earth. So God's kingdom is a kingdom of worshipers who serve and give glory to God, who have been redeemed by his grace, and who will one day reign with Christ over all his creation. And so as a church, our, our mission, our purpose is to call everyone to repent and trust in Christ and become citizens of that kingdom. But it is an act of faith. It requires believing things that you cannot see with your own eyes. Because while the kingdom of God has broken into human history with, with the first coming of Jesus, with his earthly ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection, we're still awaiting his second coming. That, that day when he returns to judge the earth and establish his eternal reign. That final consummation, that final transformation of this world has not yet taken place. And so there are many who don't see or acknowledge his kingdom, nor do they embrace Jesus as king. But on that day, every person will know that Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow. Everyone will know that he rules the entire universe. It will be undeniable that his kingdom is the ultimate reality and the end goal of all history. And now finally, 
In addition to God's faithfulness, in addition to his glorious kingdom, we're given one more reason to want to be a worshiper of God, to want to be a part of his kingdom and to praise him now and forever. And that is the character and the nature of the king. His goodness to all. In verses 14 through 20. Uh, look with me first, first at verse 14. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. God is kind and gracious to all people and to all of his creation. We should should stand in awe of his sovereign providence for all his creation, for animals and sea creatures, birds and insects, and his kindness and his common grace toward all people. We should, would marvel the way that David does in Psalm 8. He says, When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? God is a good and gracious king who in love provides for the needs of his creatures, sustaining the earth so that life is possible. As he promised after the great flood in Genesis chapter 8, He said, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And this, remember, this is God providing life and sustenance even to the very people who have spurned him and rebelled against his authority. It's an incredible picture of of his condescension, his kindness to all of his creation But as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, if God graciously makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, if he sends rain on the just and the unjust, if God feeds the birds of the air and clothes the lilies of the field, how much more will he provide and care for his children, his chosen covenant people? Will God our King not exercise his loving rule to bless and to keep those who have sought his kingdom first, to those who know him and trust him as their savior and redeemer. That's really what we see here in in verses 18, 18 through 21. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Those who have called on the Lord in truth, who fear him, who love him, these are the people who have a covenant relationship with God. Now for David and the nation of Israel, this covenant relationship came through faith in God their king, trusting in his good commands, hoping in his promises, and relying on his gracious provision of a sacrifice for all their sins and transgressions. Now for you and for me, Christian, this covenant relationship comes through faith in God 
your king, trusting in his good commands, hoping in his promises, and relying on his gracious provision of a sacrifice for your sins and transgressions. Do you see our God has always been the same, a gracious and merciful God? Everything that God has has provided for his people, everything he has required from his people, we could talk about his commands and laws, his discipline, the sacrificial system that was set up for Israel under the Mosaic Covenant, and the atoning death of Christ that establishes the new covenant for us, his, his inerrant and all-sufficient word that he has given us. And the community of the local church, the elders and the pastors and the church members who are called to shepherd and care for and love us, and who we are called to love and to support in turn, all of these things are a reflection of the goodness of our King. He provides all these things. He instructs us. He makes demands of us for our good. And so in light of who he is, his attributes, his character, his mighty acts of salvation, his faithfulness, his loving acts of provision and kindness, why would anyone reject his kingdom? The only sane decision, the only reasonable decision is to submit to this perfect and righteous king. And if you've never done so, then today is the day. But for those of us who do belong to this glorious kingdom, we must speak, we must sing, we must declare the greatness of his kingdom. And as we do that, For ourselves and for one another, we're reminded of what a great kingdom it is. We must declare the majesty of our King Jesus, who fulfilled all of God's promises for us. And we must, as David says, praise the Lord and bless his holy name forever and ever. Because our God is worthy. As we're about to sing, he is worthy of worthy, worthy to receive all praise. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we are taught by your word, your faithfulness, your unchanging character from generation to generation. We thank you for for the truths of, of your mighty acts of salvation that have been passed down over, over thousands of years, of, of the gospel that's been spoken and, and shared and taken to every uh, corner of the earth, even here to South Dakota, by your grace, by your mercy. Thank you that, uh, that we who have put our faith in Christ are, are brought into your kingdom by no uh, merit or ability, or reason that comes from ourselves, but by your, your kindness and grace alone. And we pray uh, that as we are reminded of these things, as we reflect on these things, uh, that our response would simply be to praise, to glorify, uh, not only now as we sing, but as we go from here and in each day, uh, both privately and Uh, in public, that we would make known uh, the glories of our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.